Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Let's rejoice as we hear this word preached. Please open there as we'll be coming back to this verse. This great chapter of Romans 8 is coming to an end, and Paul uses seven questions to drive home the main point of the chapter, the absolute certainty of the believer's final salvation. And the first question sets up the last six questions. What then shall we say in response to this? In light of all that's been said, is there a summary response to it all? And Paul's answer to his question is another question. Here is our response. If God is for us, who can be against us? It begs an answer. And the clearly implied answer is it doesn't matter who or what is against us just so long as God is for us. Now, there is a a peace to pillow your head on each night. There is a joy to wake up to every morning. And there, there is a foundation for hope when it appears that everything is against you. And so, dear saints, let this fact, let this treasure, this unchangeable fact that God is for you all day, every day, be the treasure of your heart. We saw that our joy and peace that flows from this fact to our heart is proportional to how well we know this God who is for us. Well, just how for us is God then? How is God for us? And Paul answers with another question in verse 32, and that is our study for today. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? It's a question meant for us to stop and consider, to think about. That's the purpose of questions like this. And here Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God gave his own son to save us, would he not give us everything else that we need to get us safely home to heaven. If in order to save us, he did not spare or hold back the greatest possible gift of all, his own son, is it even conceivable that he would withhold anything less that we need? And so his, his question confronts us with the cost of our salvation. Not to us, for it comes to us freely, without cost. But the cost of our salvation to God. And when we think about the cost of our salvation to God, the, the Apostle John, the Apostle of love, is, is torn. And, and, and so we find him sometimes taking us to the love of the Son. 
and other times to the love of the Father. What do you think of when you think of the cost of your salvation? Well, we, we think of how much it cost our Savior Jesus. It, it cost Him everything. For the Good Shepherd laid down His own life for us. He became sin for us and then suffered the infinite wrath that our sins deserved. He purchased our salvation at the cost of His own life's blood. There was nothing more He could give. He gave Himself in our place, and we say, what a cost. But as I said, that's not the only cost of our salvation. It also cost God the Father something. And it is that cost to the Father that, is the, that, that through the Holy Spirit, or that by the Holy Spirit through Paul is the object of this verse. For God the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave him up for us all. You see the cost to the Father. So let's look more closely today at the cost of our salvation to God the Father. This is why we read from Genesis 22. The account of Father Abraham being called to sacrifice his own beloved son on Mount Moriah. It stands on the pages of sacred scripture as a type as a picture of our salvation. And I've read this account dozens of times and I'm still moved by it each time I read it. And I wonder if you like me, if you're like me in that when you read it, what moves you most is not so much the cost to Isaac, but the cost to his father, Abraham. Now, to be sure, there's a huge cost to Isaac. It was his life. On the altar. But the whole story is told, isn't it, from the standpoint of the cost to the father, Abraham. God's command came to Father Abraham, telling him to go kill his son. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now, nothing qualifies as a sacrifice unless it's costly. Hence the meaning of sacrifice. You are giving up something of value, sacrificing it. And here, the costly sacrifice is Abraham's son. And the cost is magnified by the preciousness of this son to, to Abraham. Notice how this is emphasized in God's word to Abraham. Take your son, not your lamb, not your ox, but your son, your son, flesh of your flesh, bone of your bones, take your son, your only son. Now, some think he says that because uh, Ishmael was already sent away with Hagar, but he was also your only son from Sarah, your only son of promise, through whom blessing would come to all peoples, the son you waited 25 years, years for, your son supernaturally born to you and barren Sarah in your own age. Take your son, your only son. And then he calls him out by name, Isaac, Isaac, not Ishmael but Isaac. 
Isaac, whom you named Laughter. Laughter. Isaac, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, whom you love, with whom you have this special bond of love. Isaac brought laughter to Abraham in his old age, the joy and delight of his life. I doubt you could find a father anywhere in that world that day that loved a son and delighted in him more than Abraham in his son Isaac. And now he's being called to sacrifice him. Now, Abraham was a man of great wealth, we're told. He would have gladly given it all up to keep his beloved son. But no, that was the cost demanded of the father. Sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And our hearts hurt for Abraham. All the way through the story, up early the next morning, gathering wood. What's he thinking? On his way, three days journey. What's he thinking? And then Isaac says, Father, here's the fire. Here's the wood. But where's the lamb for burnt offering?" question that must have cut his heart out as he answered, God himself will supply, will provide the lamb, my son. And we can barely imagine his pain as they reach the place and he builds the altar, he arranges the wood on it, binds his son Isaac, lays him on the altar on top of the wood, reaches his hand to take the knife to slay his son. And only then, at the very last moment, does the angel of the Lord stop him and reveal the ram caught in the thicket to sacrifice instead of his son. You see, it's the cost to Father Abraham that's highlighted and that points us to the cost of God the Father in the sacrifice that he made at Calvary. For Abraham called that place... There on Mount Moriah, he called that place, the Lord will provide. And Moses writes then, to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You see the forward reference, the pointing of what's coming. And that brings us all the way up to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's another father making another costly sacrifice on this very same mountain. Only now it's God the Father. And what made his sacrifice so costly is that it was also his only son. Jesus too was an only son the absolute unique son of his heavenly father, his one and only son, his his only begotten son, his eternal son who became flesh in the incarnation. But before that, in the beginning, was with God, face to face with God in the bosom of the father for all eternity. And now we think how you and I at conversion become sons of God. Not at all like that son. We're adopted sons. We're we're 
born yesterday and now brought into this relationship of sonship with God the Father. But Jesus is his eternal, his one and only son. Do you hear something of the echoes of Genesis 22? We're meant to. And this was no less the son whom he loved and loved like no one else could love. Infinite love, perfect love. Remember how God testified to his love for his son at his baptism and again at the Mount of Transfiguration. His voice was heard from heaven. That didn't happen every day, did it? We read of it happening at Mount Sinai. We read of it here. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Isaiah 42, 1, the father calls him the one in whom I delight. For endless eternity he's been the father's pleasure and pure delight. Was Isaac Abraham's laughter always at his side? Where you find the one, you always find the other. Filling his day with joy, the Son of God was not less, but more so the joy and delight of his heavenly Father. Together, always together. Think of the joy of God the Father and God the Son planning and Purposing together everything that was to ever be created and to happen in this universe. And then working together, working out those plans together, beginning with the creation of the universe and then upholding it and bringing to pass all that happens by his, his mysterious and mighty providence. Their shared joys in the work of their hands. Think of it, fathers and sons, working together, enjoying each other, and enjoying the works of your hands, and Him enjoying creating, and then redeeming many sons to glory. Did the morning stars sing together at creation, and the angels shout for joy? Then it's not a stretch to think that there was joy and laughter between the Father and the Son, as together they created a universe and put monkeys in it, and everything else that is for the pleasure, and joy, and laughter of man and woman made in his image. Never did a father love and delight and find pleasure in his son as God the Father with God the Son. The greatest love of the best human father dwarfed this perfect love. Robert Trail, the Puritan, said, where God the Father is the lover and God the Son is the beloved, who can tell what love is? Here faith must believe and adore and cry, oh, the depth, oh, the depth. Now, it's about this love-filled father for his infinitely lovable son that we read about here in our text, verse 32. He spared not his own son. What does it mean, he spared not his own son? Well, parents, you know that desire to spare your own children, that parental sympathy with them. You, You hate to see them suffer, don't you? 
It hurts you as much as it hurts them. And, and, and through that sympathy, your heart's with them. And, and so you seek to spare them whatever you might of suffering. When they were young, you even had to force yourself to discipline them. Because so much of you wanted to spare them the pain. But you love them. And part of love is to discipline them. And so you told them before you spanked them, this will hurt me more than it will hurt you. There's that sympathy of heart with child, father with child, mother with child. And now Abraham, he's no different. He has no heart of rock. He's a man of like passions as we are. And he knew this fatherly impulse of sympathy to spare his own son that he loved. And that's what he wrestled with for the three days. And all the way up Mount Moriah, he'd give the world to be able to spare his own son, Isaac. But he didn't. He didn't. That's the... That's the point of the story as God's word confirms it in Genesis twenty-two sixteen. Because you have not spared your son, your only son, I will bless you, surely. You've not spared. It's the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament here that's found in our text in Romans 8. He didn't spare his son, neither did God spare his son. You say, but I thought he was spared. Yes, the Lord spared him, but Abraham did not. He as good as sacrificed him, Hebrews 11 tells us. That was his intent, believing God would raise him again and fulfill his promises in a resurrected Isaac. But he did not spare his own son, even though everything in his heart yearned for his son. Let's remember that God the Father loved his son infinitely more than Abraham loved his son. And in Gethsemane, the father's son saw clearly, it appears more clearly than ever before in his 33 years, the suffering that was just now hours away on the cross when he would be condemned and cursed and forsaken by his father as he stood in the place of sinners. And the Bible says that the Son of God fell on his face. And oh, how he cried to his father. My father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. If there's any other way to save our people, father, please spare me this cup. So fervent was his pleading that the Bible Dr. Luke says he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in agony of soul. Three times pleading for, Father, if there's any way, take it away from me. But there was no other way. You can be sure if there was another way, the Father would have spared him. He was no heartless father unmoved by the cries of his beloved son. But to spare him would mean damning us all. There was no other way to save us from eternal torment. There was no animal sacrifice that could take away sin. And so God the Father, all heaven went silent. 
as his son's cry went unanswered. He spared not his own son. But the clearest explanation of what these words mean is found in the next phrase. He spared not his son, but gave him up for us all. That's what it meant not to spare him, was what he gave him up to. What he didn't hold him back from was he gave him up for us all. Now, first, let's be clear on who the us all is, for whom God the Father gave him up. Whenever we're trying to understand something in God's word, context is king. We should look before the verse and after the verse. Does it say anything about this for us all? Who are the for us all? So, so let's look and we go back one verse, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, this for us is, is for us whom God is for and no longer against. Let's go back two more verses, verses 29 and 30. The us all are, are those whom the Father foreknew and set his love on. They are those who he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. They're those whom he called according to his purpose. They're those whom he justified and one day will glorify. That's the for us all. Go back another verse, verse 28. Who are the for us that he gave his Son for? It's for us who love God. And for whom God is working all things together for our good. And so you can walk it back all the way to verse 1. It's for us who are in Christ. Of whom it can be said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He didn't spare him but gave him up for us all. But we can not only look backwards for the context of the us all, let's look forward. Here we are in verse 32, let's go to verse 33. What does verse 33 say that the us all, about the us all? For us whom God has chosen, us whom God has justified, verse 33. Let's go to verse 34, it's for us whom the Son died, for whom the Son died, rose, and even now is interceding for us on that throne of which we sang. It's for us all. Go to verse 37. For us who are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. Go to verse 39. It's for us who are in Christ and being in Christ can never be separated from God's love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Drink it in, child of God, for your joy and your it was for you that the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Octavius Winslow asked, who was it that delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. That would be love for us all. And the Father's love for us is put on bold display and is measured by the preciousness of the Son He gave up for us. Oh, the depth of this love. Now, to what did He give Him up then? We've looked at who 
he gave him up for. To what did he give him up? He didn't spare him from what, but gave him up for what? Well, he gave him over to wicked men who hated him and put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He gave him up to the death of the cross. That's what he gave him up to. Can you imagine the sympathetic heart of God the Father watching what sinful man did to his own beloved son? George Yeager took three of his, son, his three sons and an elderly grandfather on a fishing trip in the Atlantic Ocean. But in the late afternoon, the engine in their boat stalled and the wind and waves kicked up and pounded the boat until it began to sink, at which time all five put on their life jackets and tied themselves with a rope to each other and slipped into the water at 6.30 p.m. and began to make for shore. But the pounding waves and the current was against them. And first one boy, then another, and another took in too much water. There was nothing for Jaeger to do but helplessly watch his son struggle and drown. It would be eight hours later that he staggered onto the shore still pulling the rope that bound the bodies of the four others to him, the three boys and his father. And we can barely imagine the father's horror to watch his son suffer and die like that. But the cost to God the Father was infinitely, infinitely more. You see, God the Father is not like George Yeager, helplessly watching his own son die at the hands of wicked men. No, this heavenly father could have spared his son. But he didn't. Instead, he gave him up for us all. Furthermore, there was much more going on at Calvary that day than what's seen by the human eye. For the father was not like Jaeger, a mere spectator watching all that happened there. He was one of the main two actors, a chief participant in the unseen transaction of Calvary between God the Father and God the Son. For it was the Father who laid on him the iniquities of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. It was the Father who made him, his Son, to be sin for us. 1 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It was he, the father, who then condemned sin in the flesh of his own son, Romans 8.3. And it was the Lord Almighty who said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I will strike him. It was the father who put the cup of infinite wrath into the hands of his son to drink. And he didn't go easy on him. He didn't spare him anything. Not one drop of wrath that was needed to satisfy perfect justice. All that was due us was exacted from him as hell came to, have, to Calvary that day. And the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The justice 
of his own father. Genesis 22, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. And on this mountain, it will be provided. Jesus, the lamb of God, is the only sacrifice that could ever save us from endless torments. God required the sacrifice to be made because of his offended justice. But God himself provided the sacrifice because of his amazing love for us. And then on that mountain cross called Calvary, the Father sacrificed his Son for us. For it pleased the Lord to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Isaiah 53.10 It was the Lord who put him to grief and never was grief like his. It was the Father wounding him for our transgressions, crushing him for our iniquities, punishing him for our peace. It was the Father wounding him to heal us. And the son knew it was him. And that's what wrenched the cry from his lips. In outer darkness, he cries, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He is feeling nothing of the love of a father for his son. He, he, he no longer calls him father as he always did before. Even Abba, father. Now it's my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He feels nothing of the love of a father for the son, only the wrath of God against sin. It was the first time that the father had ever turned his face away from his son. Now, does that not add much to the cost of the father at Calvary? The fact that he was not just a spectator standing by and watching what sinful men did to his son but that he was the one who took up the knife and pierced his son and gave him the cup of wrath to drink, punishing him, wounding, striking, piercing, crushing him. We stagger before the sight and, and cry, behold, what manner of love is this that the Father has lavished on us? Us, God-hating enemies, us, rebellious rejectors of God, us, hell-deserving sinners, whom he set his love upon and sent his son for. It was to spare us that he spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. And in giving him up for us, we learn just how for us the Father is. He's for us just that much. How great and costly is his redeeming love for us. Now, I believe it's a serious error to deny that there was cost to the Father at Calvary. Sometimes God is portrayed as the unmoved mover of Greek philosophy, as if his heart is incapable of, of feeling for his son, incapable of being moved by anything below. In his commentary on this verse, Octavius Winslow says that having just come through verses 29 and 30 that spoke of the foreknowledge and the predestination of God, 
one might come away with a cold, impassive view of God, as if He remains distant, untouched, emotionally unmoved with our weakness, afflictions, and needs. But Winslow says the truth of 30, verse 32 at once dispels such a false conception of God. There can be nothing narrow or frigid and cold in the heart of him who gave so costly a proof of his love as his son. In the God the Father is a heart of tender pity, responsive to misery and need. And though God is not like us, and the creator-creature distinction is never absent, yet he's not altogether different from fathers like Jaeger and Abraham and you and me, whom he made in his own image, in his own likeness. And so Psalm 103.13 says, For as a father has pity, compassion on his children, so the Lord has pity, compassion on those who fear him. He's the ultimate father. And in a way suitable to deity, his bowels of mercy and compassion are stirred and run out in pity to his children. Isaiah 63, 9 speaks of the Lord's compassion and longing sympathy for his people. It says, in all their afflictions, he too was afflicted. Whatever touched them, touched him. Stephen Sharnock, the Puritan, replies, If the afflictions of his people reach his heart, how much more the afflictions of his beloved son? How much more is he moved by the affliction? of his son at Calvary. As his son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are we to think that the father felt nothing and was unmoved by the suffering of his son? Can he be unaffected to see his own son crying for help and receiving none and and giving none as the loving father that he was? But now, Holding it back. Why? Because he's punishing his son for our sins. The apostle of love, John, says this is the grand demonstration of God's love. Yes, we can go to the son. What what a love. What a cost. He laid down his life. But John also says in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. Who would that refer to? God the Father sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiating sacrifice for our sins. He sent his son to propitiate his own wrath and turn it away from us by pouring it out on his son. This is the demonstration of God's love for us. But how can the giving of his own son be the demonstration of the depths of his love for us if it cost him nothing? If he's as unmoved at the sufferings of his son as he would be with the sacrifice of a pigeon? 
or a goat or a ram. That's not the picture that's drawn in scriptures of our heavenly father. It's not the revelation of the son that comes of the father that comes through the son. Rather, we meet here in scriptures, the best of fathers. Who's full of the most compassion and pity for misery and suffering and need. And not only for his one and only son on Calvary, but also for his adopted sons and daughters who've been brought into the family through this sacrifice of his son. Well, this amazing love of the Father for us is to do something to us. We're not to be the same because of it. I'm, I'm coming to see that that is the chief motivation of everything that the Christian does. That, that this God has loved me. Somebody said it. I don't know who. I can't find it right now. Maybe some of you have read it and can tell me who said it, but it's true. You have nothing more important to do today than to delight yourself in God's love for you. Every day you wake up. Nothing more important. Why? Because that turns everything, you see. There's the motivation. There's the heartbeat, the warm heartbeat. The Father's love for us. The Son's love for us. The Spirit's love for us. And so I say, all of this, this, this is meant to do something to us. That's why it's in the Bible. That's why Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. And the application follows in the last part of the verse in the form of another question. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with his son, freely, graciously give us all things? You see the question. Do you see how it follows? Does it make you think? This question's meant to make you think. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the father did that, will he not only do this? Will he not also do this? Having given us his indescribable gift of his own son, will he not along with him freely give us all the other gifts we need to bring us safely to heaven? If when I needed a savior, he didn't withhold his own son, do you think for a moment that he'll withhold the gifts of faith and repentance and persevering grace to make it to the end? That he'll withhold my daily bread, the forgiveness of sins, help and deliverance from the evil one and his temptations, wisdom and sustaining grace in my trials, strength to obey and honor him in all I do. Would he empty heaven of his greatest treasure? to purchase my salvation, and then hold back something that I needed to get to heaven. It's ludicrous. Would God give up his own son to the hellish cross for us? Put him through that and, leave us, and then leave us to perish forever under his wrath for lack of something else we needed. It's unthinkable. That would make the cross a failure. It would make Calvary a waste of his one and only son. He loved his son too much for that. No, having given us him, his own son, is the guarantee that he will 
freely give us everything else we need to get us home to heaven. So again, it spells assurance, doesn't it? It spells confidence, security for the believer. Calvary says if your heavenly Father is for you that much, you can trust Him. You can trust Him. You see, that's what His costly love is to do to us. It's to make us rely on Him, lean on Him, trust Him. Is it not true that we can safely trust those that we are sure, absolutely sure, love us? We'll trust them with information we would trust no one else if they really love us. We'll trust them and take their word at face value if we trust them then will not your Father's costly love at Calvary drive out all doubts and fears, dear believer? What will he not do for those that he has loved like that on Calvary in giving up his Son? If he sacrificed his own Son for me, then I can safely follow him anywhere his word and providence would lead me. Oh, but this command might cost me some. I can trust God. He didn't withhold his son for me. Oh, but this providence looks so dark. Ah, but I can follow anywhere the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for me. Think if if you were traveling across the country back before it was developed and in the pioneering days, and you, you had a guide going with you, and he brought along his son, and it's just the three of you, and you're going along, and... And suddenly, two mountain lions attack. One goes for the guide's son, and the other goes for you. He's got one bullet in his muzzle loader. And he takes out the lion that was coming for you. And he didn't spare his own son. Now, are are you going to be afraid to follow him the rest of the way? Or are you going to say, I can go anywhere with this man. He's proven his commitment to me, his love for me. He didn't spare his son for me. I'll follow him blindly anywhere he leads me. That's the answer. That's what God's love in giving his son and not sparing him for us is to do to us. May he make it so in our lives. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of the Father. How great, how deep the Father's love for us. Let's stand and sing together as our response. How deep the Father's love for us. How kind beyond all measure. can't say that you know that for sure. The Lord Jesus is inviting you to him even now. And none who come to him will ever be turned away as every one of us here who know him are proof. And you too will find in him a love that will motivate you to live a whole new life. And the Father has given this testimony about his Son, that eternal life, life in fellowship with the Son, is found in Christ So that he who has the Son has life, and he who has not the Son of God has not life. 
Seek him, and he will be found of you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your Holy Spirit to shed abroad this love in our hearts. It's, it's so vast and deep and wide and long and high that nothing short of that power of the Spirit bringing it home to our hearts will, will change us and make us walk away ready to, to follow this God in whom we can put all of our trust. So do that work for us. We find ourselves helpless at every step of the Christian life, but we thank you that you are for us. And so draw others into your family today by this wonderful love, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.